Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Here's some words for you. I think President Trump is a pathological liar. Every day he's telling one lie or another, and it gives me no pleasure to say that. I also think he's a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a xenophobe, somebody who's gaining cheap political points by trying to pick on minorities. That is what Bernie Sanders said in an interview with Vermont Public Radio as he announced his candidacy uh, for the President of the United States. Greg Valier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist for AGF Investments, joins us now. Greg, no surprise, but what do you make of how he rolled out this announcement? Just think we're going to have a year and a half of this kind of rhetoric back and forth. And Trump, of course, hits back even harder. So uh, welcome to the next election. It's going to be pretty ugly. And, Paul, what's interesting, at least for me, is for the last election, like Bernie Sanders was out on a limb on his own. Now he's not. Now he's not. There's lots of company out on the left limb where he likes to uh, 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 play. Uh, But, Greg, thinking about it, you know, it is a competitive, it's it's a very crowded field. We're up to 20-some-odd names on the Democratic side. Where do you think Bernie Sanders best positions himself this go-round? Well, let's be honest here. He's not a Democrat. He is a self-professed uh, Democratic Socialist, has never really joined the party. So he's out there. I mean, he's well to the left. Uh, obviously, Elizabeth Warren will be uh, as well. But there's a huge lane in the center. Uh, I think Klobuchar last night in the town hall tried to take some of that lane. I think Joe Biden will. Might even be a guy by the name of Bloomberg. So there are a lot of people who might want the middle lane, and Bernie uh, makes it easier for them. And, of course, Mike Bloomberg is the majority owner uh, and founder of Bloomberg uh, LP. Um, So are we in for this no matter what side? Because if you take away even this sort of populist socialist rhetoric, you also have things like buybacks with Marco Rubio, and you have Sanders and Schumer on that train, too. Like, either way, we're sort of headed for this sort of collapse of Wall Street versus Main Street again. Well, that's a good point, Alex, and I think that even Republicans feel that perhaps the tax cuts went too far for corporations and the very wealthy, so that's going to be fair game for uh, just about everyone. But when you look at Bernie Sanders in particular and the candidates who are well to the left, I'll be damned if I can figure out how they'll pay for any of this stuff, and it may be a little too exotic. Trump has not lost uh, that. Uh, he made a speech in Miami yesterday in which like half of it seemed to be talking how, about how horrible socialists are, what they've done to Venezuela. So he's going to try to portray the Democrats as all socialists. I don't think it's going to work. So, Greg, what do you think that uh, Bernie Sanders needs to change from the last go-round for him? Well, I think that he probably has to do a little bit better with African Americans. That was a, a weak spot for him. Uh, I think that, you know, at his age, at 77 now, uh, he's going to have to show a lot of vigor. You know, he can't get a cold. He's got to, he's got to plow right through. I think uh, energy levels are going to be important. So also what was sort of percolating on this is all the rhetoric we heard about these potential auto tariffs uh, from the U.S. You had a lot of European leaders speaking out against it. You know, I spoke to Michael Zezas. He runs policy over at Morgan Stanley, U.S. Public Policy. And he said, look, it's an issue, but it would be short term. This is what he had to say on Bloomberg Television earlier today. 
There is a potential uh, political circuit breaker, which is a couple of different bills that are going through the Senate right now um, that could take back some of this tariffing authority from the president before it's actually put into place. Right now, I don't think that that's going to happen before this becomes more live than it already is. But we have to watch that very carefully because that could stop it before it starts. So kind of to your point, Greg, is that, you know, you went too far to one side. Are we seeing a world where the Senate and Congress is going to try and pare back any power that Trump really has to push certain things forward? I think if he went for uh, auto tariffs, and there's a secret report that came out over the weekend from Commerce uh, to the president, and if he looks at it and says, I'm going to impose auto tariffs, he could get a mighty, mighty pushback from Congress and not just from Democrats. So, Greg, mentioning tariffs, what do you expect, if anything, out of the trade talks with China that that are ongoing? You know, I I think that uh, we probably have gone a little bit too far, Paul. We've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves that there's not going to be a deal, in my opinion, on March 1. Way too much stuff still to be resolved. I do think late spring, early summer, there's going to be a big made-for-TV, splashy, theatrical meeting between Presidents Trump and Xi. And we will get a deal. But for anyone who's hoping for a deal by this much March 1 deadline, I think that's unrealistic. So you think we'll get an extension then, uh, at least in the yeah, near term? Yeah, I do. I don't think there's anything special about that date. They can push it back, you know, two or three months. It does look like they're making progress, but there's not going to be a final deal without Trump and Z, and uh, it's too soon for them to get together. I think that comes, you know, two, three months from now. Got it. Greg Valieri, Chief U.S. Policy Strategy at AGF Investments. Thank you very much for joining us on Bloomberg Radio this morning. now is the man who can talk about everything retail, Bert Flickinger. Uh, he joins us from a strategic, well, let me get the name right. I don't want to mess this one up. Strategic Resource Group. Oh, show off. Strategic <laughs> Resource Group. I had your bio up, but of course I didn't have the name of your shop. So he's Managing Director of Strategic Resource uh, Group. It has a long career, uh, whether you take a look at, say, P&G uh, throughout the history and sort of helping boost consumer sales there, marketing and retailing. You're the guy. So clearly, Walmart did well in part because of the push to e-commerce and their discounting. And Alex and Paul, what's really impressive about this quarter that hasn't been uh, reported by other networks is that Walmart's paying higher wages and at the same time, they're lowering their prices and generating more revenue and producing higher levels of profit. So they're hitting all four cornerstones that other competitors are not. And even even Amazon's not doing all that because Amazon's raising prices, and that's one of the reasons Walmart's doing so well. Well, this quarter's numbers were very interesting. I think investors always focus on Walmart just given its size. But I think after the retail sales report from last week, that was such a, a curveball for everybody with retail sales, uh, I guess, in December down uh, reported 1.2%. What do you make of those that number plus the Walmart numbers today? It's an important question, and the issue is that all consumers across the country are facing all 10 monthly budget expenditures have gone up over the last 12 months. So uh, rich people love a bargain, and working people and people on fixed and limited income need and have to have a bargain. And the best place to get a bargain on everything uh, she or he buys as a consumer is, is Walmart. It's the easiest place to return. And uh, Am- Amazon is good if a product doesn't weigh a lot 
or if it's not big in size. But if it's something that's bulky, like a 50-pound bag of pet food or uh, any anything else uh, that's large in size or heavy in weight, like a, a, a gallon of milk, which weighs nine pounds and is expensive on Amazon, Walmart saves people uh, more money. And Walmart's investing in advertising, marketing, and consumer communication, whether it's Bloomberg Radio, TV, the Super Bowl. Sam Walton and his son Rob thought marketing and advertising was an expense. Amazon views uh, advertising as an expense. Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, looks at it as an investment. And Jerry Delfamina, the legendary advertising agency head, said Walmart's advertising is some of the best anywhere in the world, and that's in taking consumers away from competitors when Walmart lost for competitors. But at what expense, right? Like, So gross margin expansion is going to still be elusive for them because they have to do all the stuff that you just said. They have to keep prices low. They also have to deal with delivery and shipping and all that. So wh- why is it okay now versus like a couple of years ago when that wasn't okay? We, we look at it, Alex, on your key question is Walmart's investing in the future to profitably drive sales growth. So if you look at depreciation for Walmart versus depreciation for Amazon, Walmart's spending more than its level of depreciation to win online, win with their store $11.99 in Avon, Colorado with Click and Collect, with a FedEx uh, station inside, with Western Union to wire money. And Hmm. 90% of America will be able to get deliveries from Walmart.com, including consumables, within the next two years. That's all through the investment. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos at Amazon typically does not reinvest all his and Amazon's depreciation in winning for the future. So Walmart with a better balance sheet to your point the margin margins are more modest but that's investing in the roman empire of retail uh to win in cyberspace and win the wars in the stores as well because amazon's just getting crushed in the new whole foods formats uh by walmart and others yep so bert flickinger managing director for strategic resource group joining us uh in studio one of the numbers that jumped out at at me bert uh was that 43 percent growth in e-commerce uh for walmart so they continue to compete extraordinarily well against amazon what is the secret sauce for them Secret sauce is the investment that Alex referenced, plus the reverse recruiting. So uh, uh, Walmart and Doug McMillan have recruited Mark Laurie, who was the genius who helped develop uh, WAG, diapers.com, a lot of Amazon.com. Away from Amazon, Dave Crisioni, my star student at Cornell Summer Executive Program, was running Amazon Go. Walmart recruited Dave away. So they've taken a dream team out of Amazon. And Bezos, in our view, is the most brilliant guy in all of the history of retail. Uh, But one general can't win the war. And Walmart's taking his uh, best officers and bringing them into Walmart for Walmart to win where Walmart's been losing in cyberspace uh, before they did a complete reset with great leadership as opposed to uh, family management. So who do you think Walmart is taking market share from or is the pie bigger than we thought? And we've talked a lot about Amazon, but I'm more interested also in like the Targets or the Macy's or like who are they eating? Whose lunch are they eating? They, they're doing a combination. They're taking the business from Target because Walmart on your investment point, Walmart has the biggest uh, uh, database in terms of terabytes, second only to the U.S. Pentagon. So in terms of 
dedicated direct distribution, uh, e-commerce communications down to the nanosecond. They're great. Target's been working with McKinsey and Company, a lot of consulting firms that have done a lot of good work, but they've outsourced uh, distribution. They've outsourced, they outsourced Target.com for a number of years. They outsourced part of credit cards. So Target doesn't have that institutional efficiencies that uh, Walmart's got. The other thing that you and Paul reported uh, very well is the Payless bankruptcy, the Jimboree bankruptcies, the earlier retail bankruptcies, so uh, to Toys R Us, uh, which you and Paul spoke of earlier. So Walmart's aggregating the sales from the bankrupt retailers, uh, plus taking retailers uh, from food, drug, discount, department store, category dominant, especially sporting goods and toys. 20 seconds, Bert. How's the consumer doing, broadly defined? Uh, consumers doing well in off price and the wor- working consu- consumers doing okay. Uh, luxury consumers are really struggling worldwide. As my husband said, can you just please stop spending, Alex? <laughs> Thanks. Exactly. Just one week, don't buy. <laughs> right. Maybe, I think a lot of people did that in December, probably. Bert uh, Flickinger, Managing Director for Strategic Resource Group, joining us in studio on Walmart and all things uh, retail. we were talking about you have the fed minutes coming out on wednesday at 2 p.m and you know what i'm hearing kill the dots more revolution uh, more revolt against the dot plot because it doesn't help provide clarity but more confusion for the markets joining us now is craig torres uh with the latest so craig realistically are we really going to see the end of the dot plot and why no (laughs) (laughs) and you're so sad about that (laughs) it took a long time to get agreement on this I do think it really isn't expressing what they would like to express, and maybe that's the departure point of their conversation these days. So, Craig, maybe you know it's debatable whether the dot plot itself and that forecast and what it represents is the problem, or maybe just the messaging of what the Fed officials are seeing. What happened in December that really riled the markets? I think... So they, as everybody now knows, they stuck with this outlook of two rate hikes at a time when we later saw in the minutes there were as many as five downside risks that they cited. And so whatever they said in the press release, in the Fed statement, in their forecast, didn't really reflect the conditionality or their conviction about those two hikes they'd penciled in for 2019. So, so again, I come back to is more of a messaging issue. How can they fix that if there is, in fact, a systemic problem? It's complicated, <laughs> as we say in our story today. There are a number of ideas floating around. One is, well, Jay Powell's having press conferences eight times a year now, right? So they could give more frequent updates on their forecast eight times a year instead of four now. That would show more agility in response to current information. And I would expect, you know, that dot plot and the outlook for growth, you might see some changes. Um, Would that express conditionality, though? Uh, No, it would not. So here's what this reminds me of. And if you are a parent, maybe you'll get this analogy. It reminds me of my toddler 
wanting chocolate for breakfast. And I said, you can't have t- chocolate for breakfast. I'm like, but I want to. And here are all the reasons why. And I say, no, you can't have it. And anything except giving her chocolate for breakfast won't let her relax and calm down. It's kind of the same thing. The markets <laughs> basically want Powell to come out and say, we're raising rates this date. And if we don't, here's the number one reason why. But that, Paul, is like totally unrealistic. That's not how the system works. It is. And it's also a question of, are we getting too much information with Chairman Powell, you know, speaking eight times a year versus four times? Um, is that too much information? I don't think so. So I think the problem, you know, there's something about communication. When you make a decision, you know, as a parent, as an individual, whoever, you want to come out and kind of sell the decision, right? This is why we did what we did. It's kind of hard then to shift and say, this is why we might not do what we did. But they have to do that because you know why? Fed funds markets, uh, money markets are always a f- a reflecting the conditionality and probability of that they're going to do or may not do that. So somehow they have to address that. So basically that means that instead of the market focusing on the dot plot, they'd come out and say, I'm making this up. Here's a criteria of six things that we look at. Boom, boom, boom. And this is what makes us data dependent or not. Correct. So some central banks run scenarios and they say, this isn't going to, we don't, this isn't our baseline. This could happen or it may not. But what would happen if after the fiscal stimulus growth ratcheted down to 2% or below? And then you just ran an economic model and plotted out a funds rate. That's called a fan chart. Those are just as confusing. No, that's not a fan chart. This is a scenario with a funds rate and not a fan around it. Fan charts are meaningless in my view and in many people's view because it tells you the number could be zero or it could be four. That's really not specific guidance or it doesn't say anything about, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, your reaction function, how you'll respond. So, Craig, is there any chance that the Fed would consider a consensus forecast? That's a great question. So if the three of us were in a room and we had to walk out and say something <laughs> to Bloomberg at large, right? I think we could agree what, on what we're going to say. For some reason, the, the FOMC has a very hard time coming up with this uh, or getting to the point where they say, well, this is we're going to agree on this forecast. Part of it's our system where diversity of views is also important. But uh, it doesn't seem to me like a big goal to aim for. Um, I'm optimistic, I guess. All right, Craig Torres, tired of the dot plot, but yet resigned and trying to get optimistic, joining us up from Bloomberg. Well, interest rates are falling and a growing course is forecasting slower growth and tepid inflation. Consensus has shifted to a point where virtually all forecasters expect interest rates to follow inflation toward the seller. To get a sense of how this scenario may play out, we welcome Jack Ablin. Jack is founding partner and chief investment officer at Crescent Wealth Advisors. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. So the inflation outlook is currently, I think, quite benign in the marketplace. What do you think could change that? Well, I think probably, if anything, is the labor market. You know, clearly um, our economy is is uh, pivots off of households and household income pivots off of wages. And, you know, keep in mind that 
wages year over year have uh, are up 3.2 percent. So certainly, you know, well above uh, our trend rate uh, trend growth uh, uh, for real GDP. And based on uh, our forecast, we think uh, wages could rise another three percent over the coming four quarters. So does that wind up feeding into inflation expectations? Because a lot of investors now argue that inflation expectations will be now really what the Fed's reacting to. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Uh, the fact is that you know um, that we've we've we printed four point three four point five trillion dollars of money to buy. Uh, bonds uh, that hasn't led to much inflation. Uh, we've had now a 10-year uh, recovery uh, that so far has not led to much inflation. Uh, but I think consumer demand, which uh, drives obviously most of economic activity, once we start running out of capacity, uh, we will uh, we, we will eventually start to see some price rises. Not to mention, of course, uh, some of these tariffs that. Um, that that companies are going to have to pass along. So, Jack, I guess the uh, consensus for the Fed uh, for the remainder of the year is maybe one, maybe two hikes, and then I guess a systematic, steady wind down of the balance sheet. Are you in that consensus? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, in fact, I would say consensus, what the Fed believes and what consensus believes may be a little bit different here. Uh, I think consensus uh, is closer to, you know, zero hikes this year and, in fact, rate cuts next year. I think that's probably uh, a little overly aggressive. Uh, I, I do think, um, you know, we are starting to run out of certain capacity. Um, you know, I, I did note that, for example, um, a lot of the Staples companies said that they're going to be passing along uh, uh, higher prices to their consumers. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously Staples uh, inelastic demand. But eventually, if that starts to move into other areas, um, you know, that could that could put uh, the price index higher. Here's a question. Can wages keep going up, but the economy slows? You know, it's a it's a great question. Um, yeah, I guess it could if we have uh, higher productivity. I mean, right now, you know, can, uh, businesses can only pay wage increases out of really two things. One is higher inflation, right? If they can price their products higher and then share some of those higher prices uh, with labor. Uh, the other, of course, is productivity. If they, if their employees can earn, you know, can can pump out five percent more product for the same amount of effort, then argue you could argue that um, uh, business owners can pass some of those productivity uh, benefits along to their workforce. Without those two, um, the business owners have to start cutting into profits to pay those uh, wage increases, and that's pretty much what we're starting to see uh, over the last couple quarters. So, Jack, we had uh, some pretty good numbers coming out of Walmart this morning, um, kind of, you know, kind of, I think, offsetting kind of the weak retail sales number we had for December last week. Where is, what is your sense of where the consumer is right now? I think that, you know, it's funny. I, I'm actually very surprised with that weak retail number in December. Um, you know, I don't know, um, you know, obviously one month um, and we want to, you know, one, once we get, um, you know, more data, we can get a better sense of it. But uh, I tend to be believe Walmart, which I think last time I checked was 10 percent of all retail, um, 
over you know some of the one one time government stat, uh, I think the consumer is very strong. Um, you know, again, hearkening back to this notion uh, that uh, that wages have outpaced economic activity, so real wages are on the rise, and of course. Pump prices um, are remarkably low. One of the things we look at is how far can you drive on an hour's worth of work? Um, So it looks at pump prices. It looks at wages. It also looks at fuel efficiency. And we we find if you can get over 320 miles on an hour's worth of work, um, that's a a pretty good economy for American workforce. And that's where we are right now. So does that mean you want to be taking on more risk right now or less? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at other metrics. Um, I think that equities in general are fairly priced. Uh, I will say anyone uh, who's forecasting a recession must have a a better um, crystal ball than I do. I don't see one uh, on the horizon, Uh, you know, notwithstanding the weakness abroad. I, I just don't see one here at home. Um, so I would say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much neutrally weighted to equities. I think they're fairly priced based on conditions. One of the things I do look at, though, for the next at least six months is the relative return of financials. What we find is historically that equities do well when financials do well, and equities don't do as well when financials are underperforming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over the last six months, financials have underperformed uh, the S&P 500, and that spells some headwinds for equity investing over the next couple quarters. All right, Jack, good to catch up with you. Thank you very much, Jack Ablin, founding partner and chief investment officer at Crescent Wealth Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.